0: Thank you, Richie. One of my favorite hymns. Very good. Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We continue our uh, verse-by-verse series in the Gospel of Luke. And... uh, Since we haven't done this in a little while, let me remind you of kind of the flow of the gospel of Luke. Actually, if you go to chapter 19, um, verse 10, we have kind of a verse that you could summarize the gospel of Luke with. Uh, Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You could describe chapters 1 to 3 as the Son of Man came. And so it talks about the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus, and how he has uh, been born of uh, a virgin conception, um, and come on the scene as the descendant of David, as a new Adam. And then we learn that the Son of Man not only came, but he came to seek, and we see from really... The middle of chapter 3 till chapter 21, the seeking of Jesus as he preaches and he heals and he is making himself known to uh, the nation of Israel and also to Gentiles and other nations, and he is bringing the message of the kingdom. And then in chapters 22 to 24, we see that Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost, where we see his uh, betrayal his trials, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and uh, his post-resurrection appearances and teaching. And so that's kind of a, a general outline of the book. And so you can see that we find ourselves in the section of Jesus seeking the lost, seeking the lost in chapters 3 to 21. And we find ourselves in chapter 6. And Jesus has just called his 12 disciples whom he has named apostles, these 12 men who would shake the world. We did a little character sketch of each of them last time. And we are now approaching um, Jesus's sermon that is also recorded in Matthew 5 to 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, or sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain from Luke's description of it. And so that's where we are. Luke is writing to Theophilus, in the beginning in chapter one, most likely a Gentile uh, ruler who has come to faith in Christ, has embraced the Messiah, and he wants to write to him to give him an orderly account of the things that took place in the life of Jesus. And he wants him to have assurance, assurance of the truthfulness of this message, Uh, the truthfulness that the Messiah has come, the one that all history has been leading towards that he has arrived, he has come, and he's been confirmed by many through prophets like Zechariah, uh, his wife Elizabeth, Anna and Simeon, Old Testament saints waiting for the Messiah, uh, Mary and her prayer, and and so many others. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah who comes and preaches and tells people that this is the one, this is the one you need to hear and listen to, and Jesus is baptized and he is Begins his ministry, he goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted three times uh, in some of the same ways that there was temptation for Adam and even the garden, in some of the same ways that Israel was tempted in the wilderness, in some of the same ways that David was tempted in the wilderness, because the king is related to his people, Israel, and to the world uh, caught up in Adam. And so here's another one Adam, who plunged the human race into sin, a new Adam has come, and this one is sinless. He's flawless. He obeys the law at every point, and he teaches, and he calls people to himself. He calls people to follow him, to have faith in him, to trust in him, and not in themselves. He says that I've come not for the righteous, but for those who are sick. Not for the well, but those who are sick. In other words, I've come to call sinners. If you think you're righteous, I have nothing for you. I've come to call people who recognize they have sinned against a holy God. And so Jesus is preaching this message, and he will then go to the cross to die as a substitute to bear God's wrath that is due upon sinners that we even read about in Psalm 11, and he's going to bear that wrath. God will accept that payment. He will raise him from the dead gloriously, and that message will then spread out through the 12, through the apostles, and then on and on and on, until we sit here this morning, continuing to preach this message. So this is the gospel of Luke. Luke is holding this out to us, holding Christ forth to us, so that we would know him accurately, and we would trust him with all of our hearts. So that is the gospel of Luke in a nutshell. Now we find ourselves in verses 17 to 19, and this is kind of a transitionary uh, passage where we're moving from the choosing the 12 to this great sermon. And so let me read the text for us in verses 17 to 19. Luke chapter six, starting in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power for power came out from him and healed them all. This is the word of the living God. I wonder what you would say is the greatest sermon you've ever heard, and just for you in your own life. Uh, a sermon that just has stuck with you, that was so impactful. And there have been sermons uh, sometimes in my life where I didn't want them to end. And there have been sermons where I felt like I had never read that passage before. Was that in the Bible? How did I miss that? (laughs) It was so clearly explained. There have been some sermons where I was so convicted, I knew exactly what I needed to do in repentance afterward. There have been some sermons that have brought me to tears. There have been some sermons that have excited me so much, I just had to tell someone else what I just heard. There have been some sermons that wowed me with the unity of Scripture and how all the pieces fit together in a unified whole. There have been some sermons that have made me long for Jesus' return more than ever. There have been some sermons that have made me desperately want to be more holy There have been many sermons that have made me grateful that God has saved me from my sin. There have been many sermons that fit the pieces of the Bible together for me in a new way. Needless to say, it's hard to quantify and qualify how many times the Lord has used the preaching of his word in my life, and I know you would say the same in your life as well, to not only convert you, but also to continue to conform you to the image of Christ. And God has ordained preaching. Paul says the foolishness of preaching (laughs) as the means by which he primarily grows us. And so this morning, we come to one of the greatest sermons of all time, one of the greatest hits. And I'm talking about Jesus' sermon on the mount or the sermon on the plain. Now, there are many memorable sermons in the Bible, Uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 preaches and 3,000 people respond in repentance and faith in Christ. Uh, In Acts chapter 9, Stephen preaches and he preaches this historical sermon through Israel's history and, and calling them to faith in Christ. And then what do they do? They take their garments and they lay them before a man's feet named Saul and then they stone Stephen to death. And then later, Paul, Saul, would be saved on the road to Damascus, that one who oversaw the murder of Stephen. his words were still in his, ringing in his ears. In Acts 13, Paul, who was then converted after the stoning of Stephen, preaches in Pisidian Antioch this incredible sermon which ends with the great doctrine of justification. We can be declared righteous in God's sight despite our sin because of Christ's perfect righteousness counted to us. He preaches in Acts 13. We think of, I mean, think about Jesus' teaching through in, in um, Luke 24 where he walks the disciples through the Old Testament, showing them, look at all of the ways the Old Testament prepared for the Messiah and how I've completed them, fulfilled them. The book of Hebrews itself is a sermon. Uh, he, the author says, you, you've borne with me in a little exhortation, a word of exhortation. So the whole book of Hebrews is a first century sermon. incredible. Well, this morning we begin uh, a a summer series in the Sermon on the Mount. I've always wanted to do a summer series in the Sermon on the Mount and call it the Summer in the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) And in God's providence, we're doing it. And I'm saying we're starting a new series. This is my way of tricking you that though we're in a 24-chapter gospel, we're going to do a series in the gospel to make it seem like, you know, we're doing something different, but we're just in the same book. So uh, that's what we're doing. And uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount is much shorter than Matthew's. Uh, Matthew's is like around 107 verses. Luke's is around 30 verses. So I don't know if you've ever read like one of my favorite books is The Count of Monte Cristo. And you know, it's massive. It's so big. But they have abridged versions that are much smaller. And you get the gist of it as well. And and Luke's is like the abridged version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's much shorter. Uh, And there's some people who would say that these are two different sermons. And of course, I'm a preacher. I've preached the same sermon in two different places before and said some of the same things, but it's slightly different. Um, And that's certainly possible. And almost certainly Jesus and the apostles would have preached some of the same things in different places. But it seems like there's enough uh, ways we can correlate the similarities that these are the same sermon, but Luke decided to write a shorter version down of what Matthew did. And they have different purposes as well. Matthew writing to a primarily, predominantly Jewish audience uh, whereas Luke, uh, not so much, um, but, but many more Gentiles. So uh, this is the, this great sermon, one of the greatest ever preached. And Jesus is the master teacher, the master expositor, the prince of preachers. And so he is going to give this sermon that we have recorded for us. It is a lights out sermon. But this morning, we are not going to look so much at the content of the sermon yet, but of the context for the sermon And so we're going to look at verses 17 and 19, which is what is happening right before Jesus opens his mouth to speak out this sermon. And then in the weeks to follow, we will look at this sermon. Uh, Just to give you an overview of the lay of the land in this chapter, uh, this sermon has really three main points, if you will, and a conclusion. We are going to see the setting this morning, and then in verses 20 to 26, we'll call it the comfort of kingdom citizens. And here we have the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. So, this is the comfort of kingdom citizens. And then in verses 27 to 38, we could call this the charity of kingdom citizens. Now, charity is like an old word for love. Love. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruits love and its fruits. And so I needed a C word. So charity, (laughs) the charity of kingdom citizens. And Jesus said, this is the ethic of the one who is rightly related to me. It's love. And then the character of kingdom citizens in verses 39 to 45. And then we have the conclusion, which is really the choice of kingdom citizens in verses 46 to 49. So that's where we're going uh, in the weeks to follow. But before, there, before we get there, we're gonna look at how Jesus is healing people, casting out demons. His popularity is off the charts. His miracles are authenticating him before he gives his message. And so as we look at this summary section, this context of the Sermon on the Mount, we wanna see three orientations to the greatest sermon. Three orientations to the greatest sermon. We wanna see the popularity of Jesus in verse 17, the priority of Jesus in the beginning of verse 18, and then the power of Jesus in the middle of verse 18 to verse 19. Let's look first at the popularity of Jesus in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. As we said, Jesus has chosen the 12 to be his apostles, and now he comes down with them to minister to the crowds and deliver this sermon. The text says he stood on a level place, and this is why some call it the Sermon on the Plain or the Level. Um, This is also why some people think they're two different sermons, but actually, in Israel, you have some of these these mountains, and there are some plateaus uh, in the middle of them that you could easily fit 20,000 people on the side of a mountain on this plateau, and actually where they think uh, that this sermon took place is near Capernaum, and we've studied a lot of events that have happened in Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and this fishing town, and just uh, west of, of Capernaum is, is a place where this would totally work. It's right on the Sea of Galilee, but it, it, the mountain goes up and there's a plateau that kind of levels out. So, actually, neither of them are in contradiction. Matthew highlights the fact that they, he came down from the mountain, Luke highlights that he came down and he was on this level plain, this, this plateau area. They're just looking at it from two different perspectives. And so it's pretty amazing to see, uh, when I was in Israel, it was incredible to, to see this area where it's not only a place where you could fit a ton of people, uh, but you could also, it's, 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 it has a natural kind of amphitheater kind of effect where it would be very easy to, for a voice to carry to thousands of people. Uh, ben Franklin uh, w- became a friend of George Whitfield, the uh, famous preacher who was right around the time of Wesley. And we sang that, that hymn of, that Wesley wrote. And uh, they became friends. And actually, there's a story that says that when... Um, Wh- Franklin said that Whitfield was so persuasive in his preaching and he would take up an offering for, for orphans. He had an orphanage in Savannah Georgia, and uh, he said that he would leave his pocketbook at home when he went to hear Whitfield preach because he didn't want to be so persuaded to give, <laughs> and uh, and so. But Franklin was so fascinated by Whitfield, though he never became a believer, a follower of Christ. Uh, he was fascinated by Whitfield and his message, and Whitfield was like the first celebrity in America. I mean, he was just all over the place. And Whitfield uh, preached to tens of thousands of people in the open air without amplification. And so Franklin one time thought, I wonder how many people could actually hear Whitfield. And so he, as Whitfield is preaching, he works his way out and calculates what he thought would be, uh, he, you know, he loved to do these scientific experiments. And so listen to what Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, wrote about George Whitfield. He says, quote, He had a loud, talking about Whitfield, a loud and clear voice and articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might be heard and understood at a great distance, especially as his auditors, however numerous, observed the most exact silence. He preached one evening from the top of the courthouse steps, which are in the middle of Market Street, and on the west side of 2nd Street, which crosses it at right angles, both streets were filled with his hearers to a considerable distance. Being among the hindmost in Market Street, I had the curiosity to learn how far he could be heard. By retiring backwards down the street towards the river, and I found his voice distinct till I came near Front Street when some noise in that street obscured it. Imagining then a semicircle of which my distance should be the radius and that it were filled with auditors, to each of whom I allowed two square feet, I computed that he might well be heard by more than 30,000. This reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields, and to the ancient histories of generals haranguing whole armies of which I had sometimes doubted. Wow, Franklin. Franklin. And so Franklin is fascinated by this. How could one individual speak out? Uh, and I'm very humbled by this because you guys gave me a microphone, and we've got like this small room here. And you're like, you know, you need a microphone, Robert. And so Whitfield and Spurgeon preaching to 20,000 people. And but it, it makes you see that in the right setting, Jesus could very well be heard by 20, maybe 30,000 people. And maybe there was upwards of 20,000 people on this event. I mean, the people, we were crowded together to hear and see Jesus and be healed by him. I mean, just if there was someone in our community who could heal every single disease. I mean, there would be a stampede of people. I mean, everyone's cars would be congested. They would probably get out of their cars, leave their cars and just start walking to get there. And just, you just have to get out of your car and leave them because everyone would be so jam-packed and that's what's happening here. See, the popularity of Jesus. Who is among this crowd? Well, there's really three groups. You have the 12, whom he's just chosen, the disciples, and then the people. So he says in verse 17 that he came down with them. So the them is the 12, whom he's just chosen in the prior verses. Then it says, with a great crowd of his disciples. So those are kind of like the group out of which Jesus chose his 12. And then a great multitude of people. So these are uh, people beyond that. They're not committed followers yet. Notice that among this generic group, this third group, they were from all over. It says they were from Judea and sometimes Judea refers to just the southern part of Israel, and sometimes it's a, it's a term that encompasses really the whole land of Israel, and here it's probably that idea of like the entirety of the region, the entirety of the, uh, of the whole of Israel. And, and then Jerusalem, and so here it is no doubt some of the religious leaders from Jerusalem have come, the intelligentsia, and then it says the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon up in the north, and here you would potentially as well have some Gentiles uh, from this group coming as well, from the other nations. And so, like we said, there could be somewhere of, upwards of 20,000 people there on that day. If you go to Luke chapter 12, verse one, listen to this description of a later uh, account. Luke chapter 12, verse one, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, and he starts to teach them. But notice this is they were trampling one another. That's how many people there are coming to be near Jesus. Archer, uh, one preacher summarized this audience in three ways. He says, you have the commissioned, the committed, and the curious. So the commissioned are the twelve. The committed are his disciples, the larger group, and then the curious are just those who are fascinated by Jesus and what he is doing and saying. What is the takeaway from this first point about all these crowds and the popularity of Jesus among them? We might say this, that not all those attracted to Jesus are truly abiding in Jesus, or we might say people find Jesus to be popular for numerous reasons there are people who are interested in Jesus for a lot of reasons many find interest in him but no saving interest in him if you turn to John's gospel the next gospel over to the right John chapter 2 John chapter 2 Jesus has been doing uh, miracles and healings And then there's this statement that John has in verse 23, John 2, 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's actually, he's doing a lot of signs here in our passage too. So it's saying, John is saying, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's a play on words here. They were believing in him, but Jesus wasn't, and you could say it like, Jesus wasn't believing in them, is the idea. Entrusting himself. They were, in a way, using the word trusting in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, but he wasn't entrusting himself to them. Why? Because he knew it was in their hearts. He knew they were not true believers, And so here's an instance where the word believe is used when someone is not truly a believer. And John is trying to indicate that to us. He knew it was in man. He knew that these people were coming. They were impressed by the signs and they were following him to some degree, but they truly did not believe in And you're like, Robert, how do you know this? How do you know that that's the case? Well, in John chapter six, if you go to John chapter six, and Jesus is teaching, and he's giving them some difficult teachings in John chapter six, it's offending them. And so in verse 60, John chapter 6, verse 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, so now it's referring to them as disciples, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he's talking about his disciples, those who have said, we believe, we follow you. And he's saying to them, there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so even among the apostles, there would be an apostate, We could say it like this: It is possible to be fascinated with Jesus and yet not to have saving faith in Jesus. As we saw last week, as we looked at Judas, it's possible to preach the gospel of Jesus and do mighty miracles in Jesus' name and not be saved yourself. Judas. He did miracles. He healed people. He cast out demons. No one was like, "Hey, Judas, it never works for Judas." Why doesn't that? Why does it never work for Judas? No, it, it worked for Judas. He could do it. That's why in the upper room, they didn't know who was going to betray Jesus. They thought it was each of them. Judas was like, as we said last week, he was like a waiter who had served the food but never tasted anything on the menu. Are you among the converted and committed or just the curious? Just those who yeah, fascinated with this person, fascinated with Jesus, but not saving faith. Here's another lesson. Being benefited by Jesus in some way does not mean you're part of his kingdom. Many people benefit from church. Many people benefit from being around the community of believers and yet aren't truly one of Christ. Many were healed on this day and impressed by his teaching. People would say, no one spoke like this man, but they were not saved from their sin and they would depart from him. So they, they experience healing from the power of Jesus, and yet not the forgiveness of their sins. Those were different. And it just shows Jesus' compassion. He was healing people who he knew would never believe in him. They would never embrace him, and yet he still healed them. So they would enjoy a temporary respite, though they deserve God's wrath. And so just because someone talks about Jesus or is impressed by Jesus or is associated in some way with Jesus does not mean that they actually know Jesus. Jesus is famous. Everyone recognizes that. He is a noteworthy figure, but why is he famous to you? (laughs) Why is he important to you? Let me put it this way. What do you think about when you don't have anything else to think about? What comes in your mind? I'm not saying all the time, but what frequently comes to your mind? Like, do you think about God when you don't have anything else to think about? Like here, you're thinking about God because I'm making you think about God, right? I'm making you think about Jesus. In math class, kids have to think about math because their teacher is telling them, open your books, we're gonna study math, right? But when they go home, do they think about math? Well, when their parents say, do your math homework, whatever. But the kid who really loves math, they're like thinking about it throughout the day. The person who really knows Christ, they just randomly start thinking about him. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, the mind that is set on the spirit is life. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. What he's saying, he's not giving a command, which of course Paul would say, hey, think about the things of the spirit. Think about God and, and, and those things and not just gratifying your flesh. But he's actually just making a statement. He's saying, those who, their minds are thinking about God, it shows, it evidences the fact that God has done a work in their hearts that they have had saving faith, and they think about God. I'm not saying all the time, but do you find yourself just randomly like, "Man, I wish I thought about God more." And you're like, "Wait, I'm thinking about God. That's so cool, <laughs> you know." And or or I should pray about that. I don't pray enough. Oh, but I, I am praying right now that I should pray or whatever. You know, you're just like, or you're just, man, it's so incredible that Jesus is going to return and reign on this earth then I'm going to be resurrected and this world is going to be restored so that we live on a new earth in physical bodies, living in homes, uh, having farms, doing all these things that Jesus promised us. That is so cool. I mean, do you ever just think about those things? That's some of the difference between those who are just curious about Jesus and those who are committed to Jesus. They just think about him. They just think about him. It just comes into their minds because they're captivated by this man. So this is the popularity of Jesus. This is the popularity of Jesus. Second, notice the priority of Jesus. The priority of Jesus. Look at the beginning of verse 18. Why did these people come? It says that they were those who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. To hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Now notice the order of these two. The first one listed is to hear him. And Luke likes to emphasize hearing Jesus. Jesus will talk about the one who hears me and those who hear. And it's this idea of the need to, you know, Jesus will even say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's kind of an interesting thing. he say, everyone has physical ears, I mean, mostly. Uh, and so he's saying, if you have ears spiritually to hear, like I'm saying these words, but does it sound like Charlie Brown's teacher? Or do you hear intelligible words that, you go, this is truth, Everyone can hear, like, Jesus is the Savior. We've sinned. We deserve God's wrath. We need to trust in Christ, believe the gospel, and God will forgive us of our sins. People hear that, and they go, yeah, I've heard that before, I think. Uh, But then there's a hearing that goes, I embrace that. I believe that. And that's the work of God. And so there's this, here, it's just general. It's just these people, they want to hear audibly Jesus. They've been impressed. They've heard about him. He's the talk of the town, his teaching and preaching—that's the emphasis in Jesus' ministry—is teaching and preaching. He would heal many people, but it was to gain a hearing for the message. It, it, the, it was a sign. What does a sign do? It shows the significance of something, or it points the way to something. You know, right? We've said before, if you're going to go somewhere, you don't get to the sign, right? If you're going to go to Florida. Uh, you, you don't drive down 75 and then you hit the Florida sign with all the palm trees and you stop and you're like, we take a picture. You know, it's like, well, you are in Florida, but you know, you, you're going to, maybe Disney World would be a better illustration. It's like, you take a picture outside. Kids, we, this is Disney World. Isn't it so cool? And then you don't have to pay all the money. <laughs> so you could trick them. Um, so, but the point is, you see the signs that point to the significance of who Jesus is. Now, there was a lot we could say about Jesus' teaching at this point. Of course, we're going to look at his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount here soon. But there's something I think Matthew and Luke have in mind as they prepare us for this sermon that Jesus is about to preach. And it's more subtle in Luke than it is in Matthew, but I think both of them highlight for us a connection to the Old Testament. Who else in the Bible goes up on a mountain and then comes down with a message from God? Moses. Moses does. And we've seen already in the Gospel of Luke connections to Moses, connections to the law of Moses. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is fascinating. Deuteronomy, so Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, and Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he's writing to Israel, right before they enter into Canaan and the promised land in the plains of Moab, and this is like Moses' preaching. This is, these are Moses' sermons. And in chapter 18, here's what he tells them. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And then he goes on to speak about false prophets that you should not listen to. But then, okay, so Moses says, there's going to be a prophet. God says, there's going to be a prophet like you, Moses, that's going to be sent to the people, one of your brothers. So it's going to come from one of you, it's going to be a Jew and he's going to come, and he's going to be a prophet like Moses, but better than Moses. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 34, Deuteronomy 34, you're like, well, has he come yet? Has this prophet come yet? Deuteronomy 34, this is how the book ends. Verse 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom Yahweh knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power, and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And so he's making this connection back, he's saying, no one has arisen like Moses. And notice the connection to signs and wonders and miracles. Right, so Moses did signs and wonders and miracles, and he was a prophet who spoke God's word, and there's a coming prophet, another prophet who's coming. You you need to, so Deuteronomy ends. The first five books end with saying, "Look to the, look for this prophet. Be on the lookout for this prophet to come." And it leaves you waiting and anticipating this one. And what is it that Jesus will say about the Old Testament scriptures? Will he contradict them? Will he trash them? Will he be a false prophet in doing so? No. Listen to what Matthew five seventeen and eighteen says. Jesus says, this is the Sermon on the Mount, actually. Uh, this is part that Luke doesn't include, so we'll include it. Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is a way to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament, right? Sometimes the Old Testament's referred to as the law, the prophets, or sometimes the law, the prophets, and the writings. He's just saying, do not think that I've come to abolish, to get rid of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law. And the law there is just, uh, that's another way to just for the entirety of the Old Testament. Until all is accomplished. He's saying like there's these little strokes in Hebrew to differentiate two different letters, and they're so small. It's like, just like a little, little hook on a letter. And he's saying like, not one of those will disappear until all of it's fulfilled and accomplished. And you think, what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? Some people think that it's like Jesus just kind of absorbs it into himself and it just kind of disappears, kind of this mystical thing. The idea, though, of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament is he is the means by which all of God's promises come to pass. Jesus ensures that everything God promised would happen comes to pass and happens. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that uh, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus, and so he sees, ensures that they come to pass. And so Jesus is going to fulfill that. And Zechariah is an interesting book in the Old Testament. Zechariah means God remembers. And it's like Zechariah is saying, even the promises that you forgot God made, God remembers those. And he's going to bring them to pass and he's gonna bring them to pass through, via his Messiah. And so Jesus loves the Old Testament, and as should we. And so he's saying all of these things are gonna to come to pass, either my first coming or my second coming. Now, the point that Luke and Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount are alluding to is that this new Moses has come, one who is a revelation bringer. And Moses, he gives these blessings and curses at the end of Deuteronomy for Israel. And how does Jesus start his sermon? Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed blessed. He starts with the blessings. He's come to bring these blessings because he will take the curse of the law upon himself. And so the prophet like Moses has come. He has come. Hebrews tells us this, confirms this for us. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, therefore holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting and our boasting in our hope. And so there's many connections to Jesus and Moses. So Jesus is this new Moses. He's the prophet Moses predicted who's come. And Jesus comes down the mountain to give his message. And Jesus Has this priority of preaching, of giving out the message. It is his person that demands our attention. It demands that we listen to him. If this is the one whom all history has prepared for and led up to, you must hear this man when he speaks. There's nothing more important than to listen and respond to the message of this man. You remember the transfiguration? Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after saying he, uh, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Now guess which men are talking with him? Now you know this, so. (laughs) Moses and Elijah. Elijah. The law and the prophets. They are the representatives. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. That's the old, whole Old Testament. Behold, two men were talking with him. Moses, and I don't know how they knew who they were. They wore a jersey? You know, Moses. you know, <laughs> And, uh, and um, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing, what he said. And don't get on Peter for this. Actually, Peter has read Zechariah. Zechariah 14 says, when the kingdom comes, everyone will celebrate the Feast of Booths where they live in tents. So he's like, the kingdom is here. Let's build the booths. And so it's not just a random statement. Verse 34, and he was saying these things. Well, as he was saying these things, a cloud came over, and, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice out of the cloud, a vo- voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, what's the next words? Listen to him. And the, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now that this one has come, and, and it's like what has happened at this moment is that the Jews have rejected Jesus. They basically said, Jesus, they cannot, his miracles are so undeniable that the religious leaders have to say, well, He does them by Satan. I mean, they can't deny that he did the miracles because people's arms are growing back and they're coming back from the dead. I mean, there's a, there's a, a funeral going by and Jesus touches the, uh, the the beer and and the person gets out of the coffin. I mean, you cannot deny these things. And so they're like, how is he doing these things? And they're like, here's how. Satan is empowering him. This is the ultimate rejection. And so Jesus kind of transitions at this point and the disciples are like, wait, I thought the kingdom on earth was coming. I thought Jesus was gonna rule as king. And Jesus is now showing them, let me just give you a preview of what the kingdom will be like, the glory of the son. And, and so that Peter's like, oh, the kingdom is coming. Let's build booths. But what, what God the Father is saying is, listen, this is the king. He has come. This is the one who will reverse the curse on the earth, who will bring total regeneration to the earth and to his people. He is the right person. So you must listen to him. But the kingdom on earth awaits for the second coming. That's the idea there. And so he gives them this glimpse of of attractions to come. It's like a movie preview. And he says, listen to him. And so the people came to hear him. They did the right thing. And this is the focus of Jesus' ministry. The priority of his ministry is preaching and teaching. Because people need to hear the message. We need to be qualified by trusting in Christ to be a part of his future kingdom, to be rightly related to the king. They came to hear him and that is what we do every week. I mean, we come to hear from God in his word, right? We, we hear from God insofar as we rightly interpret this book. If we get it wrong, we don't hear from God. That's not the voice of God. If we get it right, we hear the voice of God. We hear what he is saying to us. I mean, the more, let me just encourage you. Like, as you read the Bible, sometimes it's hard. You're like, what does that mean? I don't know what that says. Just keep with it. Just keep going. Keep reading. Keep reading. Keep reading. I mean, I know I have a long way to go, but just the cumulative effect of studying the Bible for so many years, like, there are times, like, this week, I'm studying the Bible, and I'm like, I just gotta stand up. I'm so excited about what I just saw. I've gotta tell someone, Sunday, come now. Uh, I mean, we're about to do 2 Samuel. I mean, I can almost cry how excited I am for 2 Samuel. I'm just like, this is so cool, you know, the Davidic king, you know. So, over time, though, you see more connections in the Bible, and you go, oh my goodness, this is one story. And you're like, I knew, I'm supposed to say that. But this is all so woven together and connected. And you can't see that unless you spend time with your face in the book (laughs) reading and and reading people who have seen those connections too and benefiting from their work. And you just start making connections on your own. You're like, wait a minute, I just read that there. Oh yeah, it's so cool. And though there's so many different authors over thousands of years, it's this one story that speaks to the truthfulness of the book as well. I mean, this is incredible. And Jesus comes to speak, and we come to listen every week. We come to sit under the word. It's like Samuel in 1 Samuel, and uh, he, he hears the voice of God, and Eli says to him, say to him, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I mean, that's what we should say every Sunday. Every time we open the word, Lord, speak, I'm listening. What do you have to say? What do you want me to know and hear and respond to? So keep seeking him, to hear him through his word that is written. Finally, let's look at the power of Jesus. in Verses 18 and 19, the power of Jesus. And it says, and he he, he was um, healed all their diseases. Or or excuse me, the people came to be healed of, of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all healing all their diseases, casting out demons. And people are pressing in to touch him. And Luke highlights here the power of God that comes from Jesus to bring healing. And they simply touch him and they're healed. And that that happens a number of times. Remember that woman who has the issue of blood? And she just thinks, if I could just get near him, if I could just touch him. And and there's just thousands of people crushing in on Jesus. And she just gets too close enough. She touches the hem of his garment. And it says power came out and healed her. This is how incredible this power was. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he's doing his miracles by the power of the Spirit. And just note as a footnote, look how different this is from so-called faith healers today who who, who claim to be doing uh, healings. Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Oral Roberts. These men are charlatans. I mean, can God heal people? Absolutely. God answers prayer. He providentially heals. He, he heals however he wants. But he gave the gift of healing for really only three specific times in world history. Moses, his era, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Those are the three eras where God is, is, throw, is pouring out these miraculous signs. And why would that be? Why would he do it then and only then? What else is in common with those three eras? Revelation, the law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, And the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles. And so this actually helps us tremendously to see why was he doing these miracles? Why was he doing this? It was to authenticate his ministry. Remember, Moses is like, Lord, I can't talk. How are they gonna believe me? How are they gonna believe that you sent me? In Exodus 4, verses 1 to 9, he's like, all right, stick your hand in your cloak, pull it out. Leprous, put it back in, pull it out, not leprous. Take your staff, throw it on the ground. Snake, pick it back up, not a snake, you know. And if they don't believe that, turn the Nile into blood. Then they'll listen to you, and then do these other nine things, and, and and when I kill all their firstborn sons, they will know that I sent you, and they will send you out of here. And so there's these incredible miracles that are happening to confirm the message of the one speaking. God did the same through Elijah and Elisha. Remember Elijah on the uh, uh, Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and he's just like, "All right, you worship, you worship Baal, we worship Yahweh. Here's a test." Here's a showdown. You just, let's have an altar. Let, let's put an animal on it. And the God who can call down fire from heaven and consume this, this animal, that's the true God. Oh yeah, and let me just dump a bunch of water on mine first, uh, just to make sure it's really soaking wet. And, and okay, you guys go first. You go first. And like nothing's happening. They're like gashing themselves they're cutting. They're trying to show their God how serious they are. They're bleeding out. And he's like, oh, hey, um, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's out of town. Or he even says, Elijah says, maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Maybe that's why he's not here. Wait a little longer. And then he calls down fire from heaven. And what does that confirm? Baal is dead. Baal is not a God. He's a demon. And Yahweh is the true God. And then, of course, he slays all the false prophets. Um, (laughs) Pretty incredible. Uh, But that's actually in Deuteronomy 18, what it said. If you're a false prophet, you die in the Mosaic Covenant. One other thing. You got to see this. Elisha, 2 Kings. Because I know you, this is one of those you're like, wait a minute, I forgot about that one. This is the incredible power that was given to the messengers of God giving new revelation. This is how you know it was legit. 2 Kings 13, verse 20. Listen to this. 2 Kings thirteen twenty. So Elijah, Elisha, this is the one who came after Elijah, Elisha died and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. And the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. So they're like, they're going to bury this guy. And then you see the Moabites come and they're like, oh man, we got to get out of here. What do we do? There's a hole. And they throw the guy's body in the hole. And it's the, it just so happens to be the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. What, what is that? That is the nature of the power that God was enabling these men to have. That is nothing like what we see today. And why would God do it that way? To say, without a shadow of a doubt, these are my messengers. These men are speaking the truth. I mean, what was that guy's experience? He died, and all of a sudden he's like bang, (laughs) you know, he's like, uh, oh, it's a it's a body, you know. (laughs) What this is incredible. Those who claim to do healing today and fail are dishonoring Christ. These healings were so different. They were they didn't depend on the faith of the individuals, they were not done for money or fame. They were always successful. They were undeniable. They were immediate and spontaneous, and they, were, they authenticated the true gospel. Those aren't my observations. Those are from a book. But nevertheless, those are the nature of the miracles we see. Even at the end of the writing of the New Testament, the gift of healing is no longer being used even by the apostles. I mean, Paul says in Second Timothy 4.20, his last letter, I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. For Trophimus. And you're like, Paul, couldn't your healing... You know, abilities stay longer, <laughs> uh, but he, he's not healing anymore. Or he tells Timothy, First Timothy five twenty three, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I mean, Timothy's like the traveling companion with Paul. He's like, Paul, couldn't you help me out here? But but that wasn't the purpose to just have like this this thing in your back pocket to just like you know heal for no reason. No, it was for a particular purpose to authenticate the messengers. And once the New Testament was written. The revelation was given, it wasn't needed. So there's a few things. Miracles show Jesus' credentials. It affirms, confirms who he is. It shows Jesus' compassion as he's just healing all these people, whoever would come. And it shows a preview of Jesus' coming kingdom. We actually saw that back in chapter four. They authenticated who he was. And they realize it. Nicodemus, John 3, verse one, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Peter said in Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through you, through him, in your midst as you yourselves know. And so these signs confirmed who he was. They showed his compassion. I mean, just how compassionate. Jesus healing these people so afflicted. And yet it also showed a taste of things to come. When Jesus returns again, he will restore the creation. He will redeem people. Yet to be qualified for this kingdom, we must repent. We must be rightly related to the king. And so Jesus is gonna preach a message on what what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. Let me just show you as we conclude these three points, the popularity, the priority, and the power of Jesus when Jesus returns. I mean, Jesus is coming back. He is going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives, split it, change the geography of Israel, and he's going to rule, and we, are, we will rule with him on this very earth. And notice the popularity of Jesus in that time. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, verse nine. It says, and Yahweh will be king over all the earth, On that day, Yahweh will be one and his name one. He will be the only one. He will be the one above all others. He will be preeminent. He will have the supremacy. Also notice the preaching of Jesus, the priority of preaching of of Jesus in the kingdom. In Isaiah chapter two, in Isaiah chapter two, In verse two, it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, what's what they say? Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Micah 4 says the same thing. And the power of Jesus in the kingdom, when he will r- roll back the curse, animal kingdom will be at peace. We will be at peace with the animal. We'll be at peace with one another. The creation will be restored. Actually, right now, the Dead Sea in Israel, it, I mean, nothing can really live in there. There's no fish in there because it's just so salty. You can float in the Dead Sea. But Ezekiel says, when the Messiah returns to the earth, there's going to be a river that flows. The topography will be so changed that there'll be a river that flows out of Jerusalem and it will flow down towards the Dead Sea and it will turn the Dead Sea into fresh water. It will cleanse the place of judgment because that was where Sodom and Gomorrah was. The place that represents judgment and no life, God will bring life to it. And it says this, fishermen will fish. There'll be many fish in the, sea, in the Dead Sea because it will be alive again. This is the kind of power Jesus has to transform when he comes again. So, some of you guys, I wanna go fishing when we get to the kingdom and are at the Dead Sea, you know, the, the live sea, you know, fish everywhere. So, this is what Jesus has come to do, the popularity, the priority, and the power of Jesus. Oh, don't you want to be with him in that kingdom even now? And if you're a kingdom citizen, then you can truly pray what Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, your kingdom come. Father, thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would work it into our hearts, give us such hope and encouragement at these great promises. We've even talked about some that are yet to come. They are look to the future, and yet we believe, just like you fulfilled many promises already related to your first coming, just, how, just as you said you would, you will absolutely bring to pass the rest by the power that is in you. And we thank you that you have overcome. You are King. And you come to rule and we with you Lord thank you for your reconciling work through the cross through the resurrection and we pray that you would give us such trust in you that we would want to hear you that we would look to that day when you will wipe away every tear you will heal every disease you will bring resurrection to the creation and to us your creatures who have been reconciled to you we thank you Lord and may we now respond in praise to you in Jesus name Amen.